We've quite a lengthy passage to, to read, and so rather than just one person, we've got a trio of people going to come, and they're going to come and read Exodus chapter 6, verse 28, through to Exodus chapter 8, verse 15. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why should Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, they said to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptians and magicians did just the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water off the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and the canals, over the pond and over the reservoirs, and they will turn into blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water off the Nile, and all of the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. The blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even to his heart. And the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink 
the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into, your house, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and eating troughs. The frogs will go, go up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand <coughs> over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will, they will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord, but the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. <coughs> they were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. It would be helpful, I think, if you were to turn to page 61, uh, and we'll uh, be looking at these chapters, as uh, Ian has said, uh, chapter 4 through to 11. And we've entitled it The Battle of the Gods. Uh, we know that God is a God who speaks, but the question is, is are we listening? Uh, God is a communicating God, but do we have ears to hear and eyes to see, or do we choose to close our ears and shut our eyes and, like an infant, supposing that if we can see them, if we can't see them, uh, then we can't be seen. But God spoke to Pharaoh and he was not listening. God communicated to the leader of the Egyptians, but his heart was, his heart was hard, it was unbending. Uh, but God speaks not to be ignored, but to be obeyed. Gracious Lord and loving Heavenly Father, as we turn to the Scriptures, will you grant us, please, ears to hear and eyes to see wonderful things from your Word. For Jesus' sake. Well, now, this morning, uh, Sam took us through that magnificent and critical encounter which Moses had with God at the bush, which was on fire and yet was not consumed. Who am I? Uh, you remember Moses called out to the Lord, who am I that I should have to go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God's reply 
was to reverse Moses' concern and say, I am who I am. Moses, forget about who you are and think about who I am. And that's still a critical and fundamental concept, which is at the very core of uh, faith. It's not all about me, uh, as Malcolm reminded Kirk Session on Tuesday night when he shared with us his testimony. It's not all about me, it's all about him. And Moses, as God's representative, representative, had to learn that before he could do anything for God, before he could go on mission. Moses, as a servant of the Lord, had to discover that very truth for himself, that God is God, and it doesn't matter about me, before he could anticipate Pharaoh or anybody else and respond to the living Lord. Because the reality is this, that all of us in and of ourselves are wholly and utterly self-consumed. And that needs to be reversed, transformed, converted. Who am I? What about me? How am I going to cope? And it's only a miracle of grace. It is a supernatural conversion that turns and transforms that natural, sinful, self-centered way of thinking so that we are caused to focus on him. And it's not long before we see that played out in the events which are recorded in these chapters, uh, 4 through to 11. And it's a battle. Uh, There's a battle of the gods between the great and almighty I am who revealed himself to Moses in the holy fiery bush and the gods of Egypt that the great and mighty Pharaoh worshipped. If you glance at chapter 4, we have what you might call the preview or the taster of the drama that is still to come. You know the way that we get a glimpse of a movie about to be released in the cinema. And so we have it here. Moses is concerned what to do if the Egyptians will not listen to him. And God gives him three signs. There's the sign of his staff turning into a snake. Uh, Do you remember the second one where he put his hand in here and it came out and it was leprous? And then the turning uh, of uh, water into blood. And those are not tricks to grab the crowd's attention. Rather, they were illustrations of God's salvation and judgment in miniature. Centuries later, the Lord Jesus, of course, performed signs, miracles. And again, they weren't tricks to get people's attention. They were uh, pointers to something else. They were pointers to the great sign of God's salvation and judgment, which of course are the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which alone is what leads to liberation and freedom into the kingdom of God. And so here we see God's servant Moses and his mouthpiece Aaron. They went to Pharaoh in chapter 5 verse 1 and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. But Pharaoh said in verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? 
I do not know this, Lord. I will not let Israel go. Very contemporary, isn't it? Uh, when, when Christian people say, today, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ says. The rulers and the leaders and the people of our contemporary society retort, who is this Lord that you speak about that I should obey him? I don't know this Lord and I will not let him rule my life. And the result of believers calling for a God-focused way of uh, uh, living leads generally to a hardness of heart, a rejection, and even contempt and opposition to those who proclaim such a way. Uh, and that's precisely what happened here. Uh, do you see in chapter 5, verse 6, that very same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce their quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make them work harder. Um, pay no attention to their lies. So do you see what's happening here? Pharaoh takes the truth that he has heard, he, he gives it a twist, and he contends that it is God's word that is a lie and makes life even harder for God's people, not easier. That, by the way, is the essence of what Mark 3.28 describes as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? It is when you take something that is deeply truthful and twist it, contending that it is in fact a lie. That is so profoundly wrong. It is what you call antichrist. Saying what is good, what is true, what is lovely, and turning it around to say that it's horrible and nasty, and evil. And so no wonder Moses returned to the Lord. You see in chapter 5, verse 22, and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Well, that then leads us uh, to chapters 6 through to 11 and to this series of plagues which are designed as a warning to Pharaoh but also as an opportunity to Pharaoh to repent and change his mind before the 10th and final plague which is the one that made the difference and saw God's people finally allowed to go. Um, if you were to glance over those chapters, you'd see that the plagues are plagues of blood and frogs and gnats and flies, uh, a plague against the livestock, uh, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and death. And the commentators, if you were to read the, the, them, 
they, they would point us to, to the fact that these are essentially challenges to the very core of Egyptian religion and belief. We can't really go into it in a big way now in any huge detail, except to note, for example, that in the Egyptian court, the cobra uh, represented the fiery eye of Ra, who was the sun god. Um, I think we've got a, a picture of, of Tutankhamun. Do, do, you see, do you see the cobra right in his forehead? What's the most significant thing in Egyptian society? It's, it's Ra, it's this snake. And, and so, so here we have this challenge. The, the one true living Lord who is able to do things with snakes, but snakes are at the very core of Egyptian uh, belief. Uh, so there we go. Uh, magicians uh, um, of Pharaoh, they turn their staffs into snakes, uh, but it's a particular shock when Aaron's staff, which has turned snake, swallows all of their snakes. Um, God is greater than all the gods of Egypt, and that's essentially uh, what that's saying. So that's a very strong message. So each of the plagues that happen here uh, aren't just randomly brought out of the air, but they, they strike to the very heart of Egyptian society. So, for example, one of the plagues was against the Nile. Now, the Nile is still a most significant river in Africa, but it was the lifeline of the Egyptian nation. So if you strike against that, you're striking at the very core of uh, Egyptian society. Um, the goddess Hecate, uh, who with her human body had a frog's head, was the symbol of divine power and fertility. And uh, uh, the head of the Egyptian pantheon, defeated by the Lord God of Israel, uh, was, was, uh, was light. And here we have darkness, and, and the light was, was extinguished. There, there was darkness, we are told, which could, could physically be felt, and it lasted three days in all of Egypt. Now, every society has its gods. But the message of Exodus 6 through to 11 is that however impressive they are, however inspiring they may be, all have their day. None of them can withstand the Lord, the I am who I am. Now, lest we suppose that God is, the, uh, is only anti-Egyptian with its proud pyramids and sophisticated society built on slave labor of the Hebrew slaves, um, let's not please become lying, uh, blind to our own many gods those things to which we can so easily bow down and worship, which command our undivided attention and homage. And I'm thinking about things like our jobs or our promotion or our things, our possession, our family, our obsession with education and results. And all of these things, in an instant, can be swallowed up, as it were, and re rendered worthless. 
I, I was reminded of this again in New York. Um, some of you here, I think, saw the Twin Towers prior to 2001, yes? I never did. I only saw the memorial uh, to the Twin Towers 17 years later. Now, every society has its most significant priorities. Uh, in medieval Europe, God was given first place. And so, what was the highest building in medieval Europe? It was, the, it was the church. It was the cathedral. What had the highest spire? What was the, when you came into a, a medieval town, what did you see as the most dominant feature? It was, the, it was the thing that represented the most important thing in people's lives, the cathedral, the church, God. Um, well, in the West today, we know, we know that it's money. It's, it's money that rule, it's, it rules. It is trade that is king. And so the Twin Towers, which dominated the Manhattan skyline, proclaimed to the world, money is the king. This is our modern cathedral of worship. And then two planes. 3,000 dead, more than 6,000 injured, some catastrophically. And for a moment, American society is humbled. And the West is reminded that man cannot live by bread alone. And then forgets it instantly and reconstructs a new superstructure, even taller than the one that was there before, so that it's now the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere. So the plagues that we have here uh, sent to Egypt, they, they strike at the very core of that idolatrous society, which sent a warning to Pharaoh that false gods are never permanent. Oh, they seem so impressive but they are never permanent. They can never fulfill. They, these plagues are given as an opportunity for Pharaoh to repent, to change his mind before the ultimate judgment that is coming. If only he has ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to respond. Uh, on, on Wednesday night, we, we were praying at, at the prayer time for Japan and Helen, of course, most specifically, she ministers in that most sophisticated and idolatrous society. Now, now think about what Japan has experienced in this last while. Nuclear catastrophe, astronomical heat, shocking rains, heavy snowfalls, devastating typhoons, horrendous earthquakes, terrible mudslides. Could God be saying something to that society? he's speaking is anybody listening and so Moses says to Pharaoh let my people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord the great I am that they may worship the Lord in the desert and Pharaoh responds who is this Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go I don't know this Lord 
I will not let Israel go. Well, now, in these last few moments together, I'm going to summarize uh, chapters 4 through to 11 in just five very brief points. They're sort of principles which we can take away with us tonight and help shape shape our lives. And the first one is this, a reminder that judgment is real. Do you see in the early verses of chapter 7 how God made Moses like God to Pharaoh? That's a very profound concept. When Moses spoke to the ruler of Egypt, it was on behalf of God, the ruler of the entire universe. And when Moses warned of the consequences of rejecting God's word, verse 4, it was proclaiming judgment. Uh, Hebrews 10, 31 puts it most graphically, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, And these chapters from Exodus remind us that God's judgment is real. We ignore that as our peril. Do you remember how John the Baptist began his ministry and warned the people of his day, flee, he said, from the wrath that is to come. In other words, find safety in God, not by running away from God, but running to God. We don't have an unending period of days. Again, in the book of Hebrews, this time in chapter 9, just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear sins for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin that time, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you, O Lord, Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, kept a record of our sins, who could stand? But as uh, Ian was uh, quoting from Graham Kendrick earlier on, thanks to your grace, we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. God's judgment is real. And, And this is a timely reminder lest we become complacent or insensitive uh, to, the, to the cross. Um, but, it, but it's in the cross that, that God's judgment has been perfectly satisfied. And that's why we need to flee to him to find our refuge in him and in him alone. So that's number one. Exodus 4 through to 11 shows that God's judgment in real, is real. But it also shows that there's no God like the great I am. By this, chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Or uh, chapter 7, verse 17, by this, that is by the plague of blood, you will know that I am the Lord. Moses at the bush got to discover that I am is the Lord. And now Pharaoh and the Egyptians Uh, we'll get to know it as well. And and we have this this pompous statement of Pharaoh in chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Uh, I important me. I don't know this Lord. I will not let Israel go. But in these chapters, chapter 9, verse 14, shows us that there is no God like the I am. I will send the full force of my plagues against you so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. So these chapters show God's judgment is real 
And secondly, that there is no one like the Lord. Then third point. These uh, early chapters in Exodus show us that God is merciful. Now, at first sight, this may seem odd, and yet, why do you think it was that God sent nine plagues of blood and frogs and gnats and, uh, and, and all that prior to the plague that actually caused Pharaoh to let God's people go? And the answer is, it was to, to show that God is merciful. He gave Pharaoh time to repent. He gave him time to change his mind. And at times that seemed to happen, at least for a moment. Uh, for example, at chapter 10, verse 16. Uh, here we have immediately following the plague of locusts, Pharaoh quickly summons Moses and Aaron in chapter 10, verse 16, and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Forgive my sin once more. Pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague from me. But when the locusts were carried away, then Pharaoh's heart became hard yet again, and he would not let the Israelites go. Um, I couldn't help but think how dangerous it is, dangerous it is uh, to have a half-hearted repentance. Repentance coming only through the fear of negative consequences rather than trust in God. Uh, it's not a good thing, half-hearted repentance. Time after time, God gave opportunity for Pharaoh to relent, to repent, to let the people go. But for all his mercy, for all his grace, Pharaoh's heart became harder, not softer, more resistant, not less. There's a sobering verse in Romans 2, verse 4, that says, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. To show rep contempt for the riches of God's kindness and patience, Paul asks, not realizing that God's kindness leads towards repentance. Have you ever been in a fix, I wonder? A real, a real fix. And you've cried out to the Lord and you say, Lord, if you only get me out of this, I promise I will never ever do this again or whatever. God is kind to us. He's merciful. But this generosity is not given to be rejected or ignored or exploited, but it's designed in order to help us change our behavior. Yes? God's judgment is real. God has no rivals. God is merciful. It is meant to lead us to repentance. We're nearly there. Um, the fourth point is this, that Exodus 4 to 11 shows us that it's only safety is to be found among the people of God. I wonder if you noticed that. In chapter 9, verse 4, we, we read that the Lord made a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt. The Egyptian livestock were struck down, but the uh, Hebrew ones were not. Or chapter 9, verse 26, the only place it did not hail 
was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. And even more dramatically in chapter 10, verse 23, when darkness covered all of Egypt, no one could see anyone else or leave the place for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the place where they lived. Now, while on one hand, belonging to the people of God led to greater suffering and distress through Pharaoh adding to the Hebrews' burdens, on the other hand, the only place of safety was among the people of God. Church matters. Fellowship matters. Being part of the company of believers matters because it's only among the separated, called out people of God that there is light and there is hope and there is safety. Romans chapter 1 makes it plain that there are two ways. There's the way of living under wrath or living under grace. And safety is to be found in the Lord and in Him alone. Okay, last one. These early chapters of Exodus are given to show that God's purpose more than anything else is what? It's to produce worshipers. You see chapter 5 verse 1. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert, that they may offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Verse 3. The number one purpose of God was to have a people who would put him first. People who would honor him with every single part of their beings and act as a light to the nations and a witness to the truth. Uh, the time is coming. Do you remember in John chapter 4, said Jesus to the woman with the well, the time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What is my purpose? Why am I here? What's my reason for existing? And that's the most fundamental question anybody can ever ask. And God makes everything and everyone for a reason. Colossians chapter 1, 16 tells us, for everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, has been made in him and for him. You, O Lord, created all things, Revelation 4. It is by your will that they were created and have their being. God's number one purpose and design is to produce worshipers for himself. And when anything or anyone gets in the way of that, when human powers, when false gods, when worthless idols get in the road, they are in an inevitable collision course with the Lord and have to go. 
Listen, you've been very patient tonight. But we've seen from Exodus 4 through to 11 these timeless principles. God's judgment is real. There is no rival to the Lord. God's mercy is designed to lead us to repentance. The only safety that exists is that which is found in God and among his people. God's number one purpose is to produce worshipers. That is a group of clear and unequivocally different people, alternatives to this idolatrous society in which we live. Now, having been given these great and timeless principles, what are we to do with them? Well, finally, let's just glance down at chapter 10, verse 2. There's the answer. What are we to do with these great principles? Now go and tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Heavenly Father, you first speak to us so that we may in turn speak to others. You entrust to us these timeless truths, these godly principles, so that we may share them with our children and our grandchildren, with anybody who will listen. And as we listen to your word this evening, please may it lead us to repentance. Enable us to flee to Christ, to his cross, to be spared from the wrath that is to come. Gracious God, we pray these prayers for the sake of Christ and his great glory.